Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amapadon. Thanks for tuning in. We begin tonight's broadcast in City Hall, where Black History Month kicked off and inspired hope from all communities. At Boston City Hall, Black community leaders and artists came together on Friday to kick off Black History Month. The theme of this year's event, Black Resistance. I think it is important to note that as Black History Month opened, brothers and sisters in Memphis were burying Tyree Nichols. And so it is important for us to recognize the contributions of the ancestors, the places where we have fought and we have struggled and we have made progress. But our resistance must remain until we get to the place that our city, our country, and our world looks like it should in terms of justice. Artists shared moving pieces on their definition of blackness. My blackness has proven every point wrong and every depicted envision of black people. So my blackness is not just my pigmentation of brown coloring, but it's an infant abundance of power. Thank you. Paving the way for African Americans today, many black leaders we revere from the past did so through tremendous struggle. Friday's conversation was a reminder we are all worthy. With love and respect for each other, we can confront the racism still present now. We're all human beings. Uh, when we get cut, we all bleed. Uh, the blood looks the same color. And so the reality is that we must not fall prey to supremacist notions of who's better than, who's more important than, who's valuable. We're all valuable. Each of our lives matter. And in looking at that, that's where we accept the great challenge to learn how to love one another for who we are, for the difference, the value, and the beauty of who we are. Attendees communed through music and reflected on their efforts to build a more just society. Black resistance is more than the fight. It's ensuring there's a way forward for generations to come. We're in the heart of Roxbury, Nubian Square, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city. For a place so rich in perspectives and diversity, we thought it was the most fitting to ask people what Black History Month meant to them. It's a beautiful time to remember where we came from and remember all the things that we've gone through. It's a, 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 an opportunity to reaffirm who I am in this world. Well, for me, black history is an opportunity for us to really take intentional time to reflect on the contributions of, you know, black um, leaders or even sometimes well, not leaders in the community and what does it mean to um, our history as Americans um, to rever those who have come before us. And we asked, why is it important for people of all backgrounds to reflect on this time? I think at the end of the day, it just kind of creates another opportunity, for, uh, opportunity of equality. Um, I just know, you know, personally speaking, being a multicultural uh, male within my family, being Middle East, Asian, all of that nature, I think the more that we can learn about different cultures and kind of see and experience those things, um, celebrate those different things, I think it, it kind of creates a more equal opportunity for everybody. A lot of times things get lost. We, we, we lose so much history. We lose so much of, of our um, 
of ourselves, uh, just day to day, moving forward, moving forward, and then we forget. We have a tendency to forget, and so many of our, our stories in the in, in the African diaspora, the African American um, uh, lineage here in America, kind of get lost. So it's it's always good to be reminded, not just ourselves, but our entire community, all shapes, colors, sizes, uh, to remind ourselves that we are one, and we've all contributed to this this beautiful country. Some of the heroes we hold in highest regard are those closest to us. Um, I think about my own great-great-grandmother, Benona Bradford, who was a leader in the NAACP in New York. And so um, there's so many um, of those leaders I think of who we don't always give a lot of attention to, but the work and the contributions that they made, we all benefit from. My parents, they came up from the South. They, they lived through Jim Crow. My father was a sharecropper, believe it or not. Um, and grew up through a lot of adversity and um, made a way for me um, here um, today. So, you know, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. I was afforded that opportunity through my parents. So for me, it's, it's, it's very close to home. So it's definitely my mother and my father, many Elizabeth Thomas and James Cuffey Thomas. And are there any black heroes that you look to who give you inspiration? Well, the greatest one right now is my father, that's 88, that's, he's my hero. My grandfather, that was um, Lefty, Lefty Brown, that was a Negro baseball player, he ran for state senate, that was my hero. BPS employee Renee Omolade touched on the importance of having people who look like you to look up to. I think that is critical that everyone can see themselves in the world around us, otherwise you won't appreciate the diversity that we have in this world. And if you don't have folks telling your history, you might not know your history or the strength and the value that you come from. You know, we live in a nation that, you know, is centered on white supremacy and really devaluing the humanity of different groups of peoples. And so if we don't tell those different stories, whether it's Black History Month or um, Asian or Pacific Islanders or our Native Americans or people with different abilities and different languages, right? There's a myriad of things that are part of the biodiversity of our world. And if we only focus on one dominant aspect of that, we lose the true um, nature of who we are as humans and the, the and, and and we don't celebrate all of the richness that comes from having a diversity of, of people in our world. Since the founding of this nation, African Americans have fought for their rights and humanity. What does it mean to celebrate blackness in the face of so much adversity? That makes me think of a quote. They tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And when I think of that quote, I think of sometimes you have to go through struggle in order to blossom, right? You have to be planted deeply in order to overcome. And so I think that, you know, black people are a representation of what does it mean to truly take things that are thrown at you and bear those burdens, but to overall and ultimately overcome. Since they have been bought here and they have been made to do things that they didn't want to do, and they have been made to see things that they didn't want to see and made to be another person that they didn't want to be. But we are still here. The black community will ever be here and forever will it actually last as long as we can put the community together. Black History Month is also about revering black excellence. In what ways are you excellent? 
Uh, I'm excellent as a person that uh, recognizes how the wind blows in my face. That means I'm still living. Boston Public Schools has introduced its first fleet of brand new electric buses in an effort to reduce BPS's carbon footprint. Start saying your goodbyes to the loud, diesel-guzzling, air-polluting Boston Public School buses of yore. Because by 2030, these old-school yellow buses will be completely green. On Monday, Mayor Wu joined the superintendent and Boston's Green New Deal director for the first step of electric bus integration, making good on her April 2022 promise to deploy the buses in the current school year. Today we're excited to celebrate the arrival of 20 electric school buses, which will be hitting the roads, getting more than 2,500 students to and from class every day right after February vacation. These buses will reduce vehicle emissions across Boston, and cut back on the harmful fumes that students, staff, and drivers are exposed to when riding diesel buses. The benefits of the new bus are many, including immediate steps towards climate action and improved quality of life. Electric buses produce less than half the climate polluting greenhouse gas emissions as diesel buses, and that's gonna come down to zero as our electric supply goes carbon free. With no tailpipe emissions, they create much healthier environments, for drivers and mechanics, and of course, for the students who ride the buses. And electric vehicles, buses included, have fewer parts and in the long run are easier and cheaper to maintain. As a city and as a district, you know, to have school buses that we know um, will have regenerative braking, will have zero emissions, which will have no noise. Um, and, and for our students, that's such a wonderful model and example of what's to come in the future. BPS is also installing 20 charging stations at Reedville Bus Yard to support the use of each bus, as well as training drivers and mechanics on the new vehicles. All information learned from the first routes, 111 trips over 42 schools, will help the city design and grow the green bus expansion. When we see that bird, give a big wave, so because you're going to be waving to the students, to the future of the city, and to our future with zero emissions. Beyond the home space and the workspace, there's third space. The former Pre-a-Manger sandwich shop on 101 Arch Street has been repurposed for public use as downtown Boston rethinks equity of space. Third space nestled in downtown Crossing is a fresh gathering place for artists and the community to meet, share ideas, enjoy performances, and more. Third Space is uh, the bid activating a vacant storefront in downtown Boston, bringing together a collection of activities, events, art gallery, uh, making some really interesting commentaries about the sort of equity of space usage in downtown Boston right now, uh, and then bringing together um, you know, a collection of activities for people to engage with. It's also just a gathering place where in the middle of your, your lunch day and, and eat your lunch. The public was welcome to take in the sights as they contributed to the interactive mural from Artists for Humanity and left feedback for the city's plans for downtown. The February 2nd launch showcased two installations, SOP City and ISUs from local design groups Just Practice and Vares. Their work touches on social justice and spatial equity within the city. Textiles are the chosen medium for artists Amanda Ugorji and Sophie Weston-Chen of Just Practice. They created Soft City's Maps of Boston Neighborhoods through tufting to emphasize the effects of systemic racism and redlining. 
essentially they're little chunks of black neighborhoods in the Boston area and we were interested in like the literally at first we were interested in the textures of those places and like is there enough soft space for the people in these neighborhoods like was it planned with enough soft space so soft we're thinking like like green space, like grass, water, any anything that like to the touch is soft. So we started looking at like land use and um, how that would work. And then we started thinking about like the future and the past of these places. So we were looking at redlining, current population of black people in the area, and then also like potential for flooding, because that's a big, you know, that's a, a Boston problem. Theirs is integrated shelter units, or ISUs, are scaled-down dioramas of a seamless blending of architecture and shelter for those who may not have a stable place to stay. After witnessing the massive spike in homelessness due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Theirs was moved to show how the city can be built to protect all residents. And so the idea is that you could sort of have these shelters, which are only 300 square feet, accommodate your basic needs such as sleeping, shower, bathroom, and you know, a communal space to work. And you can find niches within the city that are empty in which you can incorporate these things or like in the Atlantic Wharf, where you can sort of refabricate an interior space to accommodate one of these things. And so these models sort of give you an idea of a different future in which architecture and shelter can co-mingle and create space, more spaces for public and people in vulnerable situations. The reality that providing shelter in public areas is not that difficult. Developers don't need to give up their property values or planning districts don't need to go so far deep in code spaces really particularly or specifically, but it doesn't really take that much to put over, like put a roof over somebody's head, give them a bathroom and give them a place to feel safe when they might not feel safe in the public realm. As a platform for young new voices, third Space challenges the status quo of how we use downtown Boston and who gets to be there. May it be a hub for culture and creativity as it highlights the talents of people of color throughout the city. In this week's edition of Talk of the Town, we bring you the freshest events happening in Boston this weekend. The Actors Shakespeare Project returns to Hibernian Hall with August Wilson's Pulitzer Prize winning play, Seven Guitars. The murder mystery is Wilson's fifth play in his century cycle, and the body comedy gives a new perspective to the blues world. In the end, seven African-American characters must solve the murder of up-and-coming musician Floyd Schoolboy Barton. The show runs from now until March 5th. You can learn more about tickets at actorsshakespeareproject.org. The city will rock as thousands of college hockey fans flock to the Duncan Beanpot, where Harvard and Northeastern will go head-to-head -head in the final game of the season. The winner will bask in the glory, and the huge trophy for their school is an added bonus. More details on Duncan Beanpot is available at tdgarden.com forward slash events. And love is in the air with Valentine's Day on the horizon. And you can get in the 21 plus mood at the Big Gay Valentine's Market this Saturday from 1 to 7 p.m. on 79 Warrington Street. You can find gifts for loved ones or yourself at over 40 LGBTQ plus vendors while supporting queer artists of Boston. And finally, if you're looking for fun in the winter sun, Moakley Park is throwing its annual winter warmer event, inviting people of all ages to come to the park and enjoy warm drinks, yummy snacks, games, crafts, and more. Good times for the whole family on Saturday, February 11th from 12 to 2 p.m. 
We turn now to this week's interview with composer Tobias Picker. Tobias has drawn commissions from and performances by the world's leading musicians, orchestras, and opera houses. The New Yorker has called him a genuine creator with a fertile, unforced vein of invention. An accomplished pianist, he's performed as a soloist in performances of his piano concertos and chamber works with major orchestras and chamber ensembles around the world. In 2010, he founded Opera San Antonio and served as its artistic director until 2015 and was artistic director of Tulsa Opera from 2016 to 2022. Tobias joined us to discuss his latest opera, Awakenings, premiering this month at Huntington Theatre, and his relationship with the respected Dr. Oliver Sacks. Enjoy the conversation. Odyssey Opera's Awakenings, which you composed, will have its East Coast premiere at the Huntington Theater in a one-night-only production on February 25th. So the opera is based off the 1973 bestseller Awakenings by Dr. Oliver Sacks, and it pulls from his work Awakening Bronx Hospital patients from a decades-long catatonia with the drug L-Dopa in the 1960s. What about this story resonated with you and what elements of it do you feel is best suited for music and, and the opera? It's, it's history. Um, it's it's uh, also, it's, it's fairy tale, uh, but it's fairy tale. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of Sleeping Beauty meets Rip Van Winkle. Hmm. Um, and he off even in 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 the book Awakenings, which is a series of case studies of the patients that he treated with L-Dopa in the summer of 1969. Uh, he refers to these them as Sleeping Beauties sometimes, or and sometimes I think Rip Van Winkles because they woke up and when they woke up, the world that they knew in 1926 was gone. Hmm. And all of a sudden, it was 1969 in New York, and quite quite a difference. And uh, Rose, one of the central characters, for her, it was always, it still was 1926. They they, they had trouble adjusting to waking up 40 years later, and um, so these stories are these are these these are are the legends that uh, that that make make for great great stories great ballets and Tchaikovsky wrote a ballet on sleeping beauty and they're they're the the the, the natural fodder of of great storytelling but this actually happened and mm. the fact that it actually happened and my friend was the was the man who who treated them with L-Dope and woke them up after this long sleep you know how could I resist? The late Dr. Sachs actually came out as gay in the months before his passing in 2015. And you've taken the opportunity to create a new narrative around his life and the production of Awakenings. Why was it important for you to tell the new version of the story and especially one where his identity is more aligned with who he really was? Dr. Sachs, when the, when the movie was made, in 1990 was he was in the closet and because he had a very traumatic experience uh, as a young man 
with his parents, uh, which was which is in the opera, um, shaming him about being gay when he when he got into Oxford, um, and so he didn't come out until the until 2015, the year of his death, when he was 82, when he was dying, he wrote his autobiography and came out to the world as a gay man. And so, in my opera, uh, he is he is depicted as close to the real Oliver Sacks as the the one I knew. The Robin Williams Oliver, Oliver Sacks had some had many of his kind of idiosyncrasies, but uh, I think I think um, it was another time. So right, we're we're living in another time, and this we we brought the story forward to the present day in a in that sense. Your partner Arye Leb Stolman is the librettist for Awakenings. I'm curious, what was it like to work with him on this production? Well, he it was I was very a privilege to have him. He's a distinguished a writer. Uh, he His uh, first novel won the Lambda Literary Award for, for the Far Euphrates, um, and he's written several novels and collections of short stories, and he's also a, a, um, a senior uh, neuroradiologist, a brain radiologist at Mount Sinai Hospital. So he uh, his his writing is very lyrical but his knowledge of the subject matter of this neurological disease that these people were suffering from uh was so enormously helpful in in making a piece that's 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 true true to life we we of course invented uh invented m many things because they're composite Characters, uh, you don't, you can't, you can't take a, a book that's this thick with with case studies and make that put it into an opera. A librettist mm -hmm. has to create a story from it, and he he's great at that, and he's a great librettist. Um, working with it was the first time it, after, it was the, my sixth opera, and so I'd written five with other librettists. Mm. Um, th this was different. Because if I uh, wanted some words changed, or if I just, uh, or if I had an idea, or if he had an idea, um, you know, just go down to the other side of the apartment and say, "Hey, can you take a look at this?" And every time I wrote some, I'd I'd write some music. I'd come, he'd come over, and and I'd play it for him. So it was it was it was a very kind of. Uh, it was a household uh, collaboration and. Um, I think you asked me what it was like. It was, it was, it was really a joy. A joy. It was a joyous experience. And it and the uh, writing this opera was a labor of love. I loved Oliver Sacks. I mean, he was he was he was a dear friend and a great man. And um, so, the and the underlying message of this opera is love, and that. Uh, he treated these patients out of love for them. Extremely meaningful, uh, a very deep connection with the work and also the friendship that you, you talk about that you had with Dr. Sachs. In what ways do you feel his friendship enriched your life? I um, suffer from a, a neurological condition called Tourette's syndrome. 
and uh, Oliver Sacks was an authority on Tourette syndrome and wrote uh, wrote many many articles uh, for the New Yorker magazine and 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 in his books about people with Tourette. So he he studied people with Tourette's. When I had when I was a child, and this uh, the onset of this uh, this illness uh, took place at my I was six five or six. Uh, and then once it came, it stayed. Um, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what Tourette's was in in 1960. It, it no doctor knew. It was undiagnosable. So I grew up with uh, with with an um, with a, with a condition that involves involuntary tics. Which, if I'm very focused and concentrating, or like I'm talking to you right now, sometimes they're just not there. Uh, I don't know when they're there most of the time, but they're 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 happening even if you can't see them because my hands are doing things, you know, my different parts of my body are ticking. Mm -hmm. uh, so growing up with this this particular syndrome was difficult at best because I was shamed for it. I was I was shamed. My parents were disappointed. They didn't. They they had no idea what was wrong with me. My my teachers and my my friend, my other children at school. I was I was teased. I was I, it, it was it was really difficult. Mm. And when I met, I finally met uh, Dr. Sachs in. Uh, I had been diagnosed actually in my thirties. Finally, when that when it was it was coming into scientific knowledge what it was um but i didn't know much about it but get it when i got to know him and he he uh and i talked about he asked me many questions about about it and he observed me um he he uh, gave me his theory of what caused it it was mm -hmm. just a theory in my particular case and he um just being around him and because it was so it was to him it was a it was a source of fascination um it's a it my shame you know my present day shame was was healed in, in a way by dr Sachs. Wow. not as my he wasn't my doctor just my as my friend what do you believe the legacy is of dr Sachs, and what message would you like audiences to leave with the the there's several messages, but the one that first comes to mind is that we all we all go through life with carrying some burden. Everyone has everyone has something that they have to deal with. That whether some there's a it's it's on a spectrum of from something very minor to something very major, but. We all have something that we that that um, eventually is wrong with us. Um, we're human. That we're all human, and we're, we're it's a very humanist piece. We're all human together. Even even and the, even these people who who were just treated as, as before he came along in the hospital, they were just left left there to sit like like statues, and and they were fed and bathed and. Uh, but they had no life. Hmm. Uh, he gave them he gave them an a, a, an opportunity to live again, even though it was a brief time. Uh, 
they he 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 gave them life and i think i think he showed that no matter what what is wrong with any of us we still we still have we have life when we have life we have hope and the, and the, and he gave these people hope more information on awakenings can be found at odysseyopera.org Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amathodon. I'll see you next Friday.